0: Welcome to another episode of The Startup Operator. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Kushal Bagia. Kushal is the CEO of First Check, which, as the name suggests, invests in very early stage companies. Before this, he headed Strategic Alliances at Upgrad, one of the fastest growing edtech startups in the country. In this episode, we discussed his transition from founder to operator to investor. Uh, his learnings from meeting early-stage startups across the country, and what founders can learn to build a successful company. So Kushal, great to have you on the podcast finally. How are you? I'm good, Roshan. Thank you so much for having me. Here. My pleasure. <laughs> so all right, uh, as I cued uh, uh, this in the intro, right? I'm going to I'm going to begin with that. You've done all three roles. Uh, you were a founder with uh, Naya Disha. Uh, then an operator at Upgrad, and now you're an investor at first check. Uh yeah. what do you see as the main differences and what are the similarities between all of these three hats that you own?
1: Uh so I I feel like the founder and the investor mindset is very diametrically opposite. Uh, founders uh are very problem-driven, market-driven, and they they basically uh, see a situation and they, they realize that the chances of them actually, you know, solving that problem or actually building a large company are, are minuscule, mm-hmm. but uh, they always feel that I am going to be that 1% <laughs> who actually goes through. Right. Whereas uh, the for the investors, it's always uh, weighing the risks. Uh, as you know, uh, what are the chances of this guy being that 1% was, as you know, most, most startups fail, right? So as an investor, your job is to basically uh, I, of course, as a VC investor, you have to be optimistic as well. Otherwise, you'll never have a big, big bank winner. But the the mindset is always to sort of uh, keep thinking of risks in the journey. Whereas in a start, like, whereas in a startup, you know that okay, I understand the risks, but I'm the guy who's going to solve those risks. Uh, so the diametrically opposite, uh, I think, uh, uh, roles. Uh, as an investor, also your uh, fulfillment in terms of you know getting to do things is is much lesser because you. They, you meet people, you, you study a lot of things, you read a lot, you take a call and you invest in a company. And after that, what happens to that company is largely driven by the founders. Hmm. Uh, the role you can play with your advice or your help, it's good to have. But honestly speaking, you know, it's it, even if you were not there in the room, the founder would probably still uh, do the same thing. The good founders end up doing the great, the great founders end up building great companies anyways, with or without investors. Right. Um, so as an investor, you um, the uh, you don't get to see the you don't get to have the satisfaction of creation essentially. Mm. But as a founder, you can actually build things, see people using them, and that has its own joy. Uh, of course the risks are also different. Founders as a founder, you 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 are not sure you're gonna get a monthly salary in the bank. Uh, but if you're an investor, you have raised a fund, so at least your base expenses are covered and you don't have to worry about that. Mm. And there is significant upside for you in terms of uh, uh, you know, how well your companies do and then you get a carry from that. Uh, but as a founder, of course, if it does well, then you make a lot more money. Uh, if the company does well, then, then your investors. So yeah, those that's, I think, broadly how I look at the two roles. Uh, founders, very, very uh, hands-on, very, very uh, operations-driven investors are much more aloof and uh, I, I sort of miss the joy of creation in what hmm. I'm doing now. Okay, okay. Uh, you know, founders have
0: to be a little more optimistic, right? I mean, not to the point of irrational exuberance per se, but at least they have to be optimistic about, as you rightly pointed out, them being the chosen ones to solve this particular problem as such.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, I got the idea of this concept from uh, Ben Horowitz's book, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. In that he very, very clearly says that, you know, there are times when you wake up in the middle of the night, you feel like I've been chewing glass all day and uh, there's a chapter in that book called the struggle that that chapter for me really sort of captures the journey of being a founder it is just painful like every day you know shit goes wrong and you are the one who has to fix it uh, uh, so uh, so yeah I mean uh, founder's journey are definitely very 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 tough right so let's, uh, let's focus
0: on this other facet of your life which is like you know the whole operator phase that you went through with Upgrad right uh, it's kind of a fantastic time for edtech startups right now. Uh, and I personally feel I think colleges may have to sell students on why they have to go back to colleges, right? Yes. Uh, yes. You know, whenever this lockdown eases and we go back to uh, what looks like the the normal uh, day-to-day things, right? Uh, you joined Upgrad in 2016. Uh, I think this was before uh, Ronnie Skruwala invested in the company as well.
1: No, so Ronnie is essentially a co-founder of Upgrad. Ronnie and Mayank started the company together. Uh, uh, So Ronnie's been there since day one. I joined when they had just launched the first program, which is the entrepreneurship program. And uh, I think about a couple of months after I joined, uh, a slew of the first set of programs came out. Data analytics, product management, digital marketing, uh, and so on. Uh, So it was definitely a very, very interesting journey because uh, I got to see a lot of things. Uh, I had never seen a company acquire uh you know customers at that scale before yeah. at my own startup we never really broke out uh of a, of a small angel funded setup mm-hmm. uh but here there was uh, the company had large money so like for a lot of the problems we would face money not not having money in the bank was not a problem like you know we could uh we, we had money in the bank because ronnie was a co- co-founder and he had funded the company mm-hmm. so a lot of the problems that we could solve with money were we were able to solve so scale was coming uh, fairly fast and upgraded did scale fairly quickly uh, partly because of that right um, so yeah it was very very interesting we i got to see how a company when i joined i think there were about uh, 50 odd people in the team and uh, when i left uh, in 2000 end of 2017 there were uh, almost 400 people in the team uh, so it, it grew really fast Uh, Some of the programs did really, really well. There was instant product market fit in some verticals. Some took a little longer to come around. Uh, But the interesting thing about Upgrad and any sort of uh, edtech program-driven company, right, Mm -hmm. is that in normal companies, you have to find PMF once. So if you're Uber, you figure out that okay, you have an app where you press a button and the cab comes. You launch it, you see people using, and you you figure it out, and after that you scale. Mm. In a edtech company with, with you know these verticals, you have to find PMF every single time for every mm-hmm. program. Yeah. So each program runs as a new vertical. Each or each of those programs will have its own uh channels, its own sort of communication, a different TG, a different CAC, a different LTV. So so Upgrad had a very uh, good structure to handle this uh, kind of complexity. So they had a uh, pro, uh, sort of a program director for every every program mm-hmm. uh, that would sort of handle for that. So within Upgrad there were basically uh, four different divisions for each of the programs. Kind of like a category manager in Amazon or something of that sort. Yeah, yeah, some, something like that. Exactly. Right. exactly. Uh, so yeah, definitely very interesting experience. My role was to uh, sell this to corporates to get, get their buy-in in terms of uh, three, four things. One was getting them to uh, co-create content with us. So convincing Uber to come and do case studies with us on our programs, convincing GenPack to come and do that, so on. Uh, two was to basically get our students hired by these companies. So Upgrad has a variety of people who take its programs from, you know, people who are just graduating college to people with 20 years experience also. But on average, I think the people, at least when I was there was the uh, people with five, six, seven years of experience, mid-career professionals mm-hmm. who now wanted to switch into something else or who wanted to do better at what they were currently doing. Right. Uh, and my role was to basically, so part two of my role was to get companies to, uh, you know, hire students who did our program. So that was, that was quite cool because companies, as I said, hiring process where they would look at college degrees and work experience and then hire candidates to sort of fill roles accordingly, depending on the credentials uh, people had. Uh, so we had to get them to understand that an online program counts for as much or maybe counts for more than a traditional college uh, college education uh, degree that somebody might have. Right. Um, so that was pretty cool. Uh, then part three was getting these companies to buy our programs. So, so there I would think we were moderately successful when I was there because uh, Uh, Our programs were really largely B2C focused, not B2B focused. B2B is something which was launched later on at Upgrade. And then part four was what I did shortly, which is sort of create uh, custom programs for companies. Uh, So, for example, we did a program with a large pharmaceutical company to train their sales reps uh, when they joined the company. So, before joining the company, they would give them a mobile uh, training program and they had to finish it and then join the company. So, that saved them a lot of costs. So these broadly all kinds of corporate engagement is sort of what i looked at at upgrade right interesting and you know you mentioned
0: you grew from 50 to, to 400 right so what changes when yeah. you grow at such a rapid pace i mean from 50 to 400
1: a lot of things change a lot of things break uh, a lot of the processes you set for a team of 50 just don't work at a scale of 400 uh communication changes a lot so uh there is a lot of shared knowledge in a team when it's a small team just people just know things because they they've all been in the same room and they know mm. what was discussed, right? So, you don't have to explicitly tell people what to do in, in a lot of situations. But in the larger team, decisions are taken at one level and they're executed at another, another level. So, the guys who are executing don't know what was discussed in the room. So, the, the kind of communication you need to do and that kind of a setup is very, very different. Uh, hiring, uh, if you hire very, very fast, then uh, very often you end up hiring uh, you know, some wrong people. So, you have to be ready to, you know, be, to make mistakes there because... If you grow from fifty to four hundred, you will hundred percent hire some people who are not a fit with the company or uh, who don't exactly have the skills that you thought they do, right? Um, so yeah, and uh, and that's when uh, I mean, sorry, and that's when culture
0: becomes a really important part, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So
1: uh, because the first set of people work directly with the founders, so they imbibe a lot of their values and their culture directly from them. So as a founder of the company, uh, at least till the first 10 10-20 employees, you know like they're thinking about the company the same way that you are. Mm. Uh, but the moment you go beyond that, you have 400 employees, a lot of them may not even have met a founder in their time at the company, right? So their idea of what the company does, what it stands for, what its values are, are what they get from their super their immediate uh, uh, bosses, right? So, and, so it sort of gets filtered down. Um, so yes, culture also definitely gets impacted with scale a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because I think uh, one of the, one of the main importance uh, of uh, culture, right, is when you make Uh, trade-offs. Because, I mean, (laughs) you know, we all agree on such lofty goals, right? Like, you know, uh, take any of those corporate values that you can read up. I mean, whatever it is, integrity and this and that and quality and whatever else. But then it's really how you behave when there's a trade-off that uh, defines your culture. And you can't scale that, uh, uh, I mean, the the only way you're gonna scale that kind of decision making is through imbibing that culture, right?
1: I think a friend of mine uh, had a nice way to put this. The way he said it was, I think that uh, culture is things that, if, like, basically, culture is things that you know you don't have to point out to people. Exactly. Uh, things are like decisions are taken on their own by by your team without you having to sort of uh, impose a punishment or an incentive for it. Like right. so, when you are in that kind of a situation when a team member has to take a call where he can go either way and he chooses the right way automatically, right? He or she chooses the right way automatically. That is essentially what your culture is. right? And, you know, I mean, uh, culture also depends on
0: the the second rung of people who join your startup, right? I mean, the, the operators, so to speak, right? Or rather the first rung of people who kind of report to founders and so on. Uh, yeah. What did you guys do at Upgrad that kind of set yourselves... Uh, on this fast growth path, I mean, was there any conscious decisions on, you know, that these are like uh, things we should do? These are things we should avoid and so on. Uh,
1: so Upgrad definitely did one thing very well is they hired a lot of ex-founders, uh, including me. So there were, I think, at least five or six other people uh, like me who had started a company or either were a part of a you know, core team of another founding company. Uh, sorry, part of a founding team of another company. So they had seen one cycle of uh, failure, or they had seen you know how what mistakes can be made, and they they understood what they are signing up for. They're signing up for uncertainty. They're signing up for some level of experimentation. And once you, you, know, you see some uh, concrete direction, after that they're signing up for rapid scale. Uh, so that definitely helped a lot uh, at Upgrad, you know, figuring out how to hire other founders. And this was back in 2016 17 it was a good time also to be hiring founders because the 15 was a very very hot year in the indian startup ecosystem exactly. bunch of people raised a lot of money and uh, end of 15 or beginning of 16 that bubble burst so there were a lot of founders who had run one company which didn't work out and they were in the market looking for the next uh, gigs uh, so upgrad especially when in bombay there were not that many tech companies even today there are not that many but that back then they were even lesser mm-hmm. so upgrad could essentially scoop up a lot of these people uh, from the Pavai startups ecosystem. Interesting,
0: interesting. Okay, let's move on to first check. I think, uh, you know, we first met uh, when you were just about starting first check. Uh, yeah. And I think I see you hustling harder now than ever before, right? Uh, and it's it's pretty counter to, it, it runs counter to what uh, people think uh, investors do, right? Which is sit on a couch, <laughs> reply to emails, uh, and then listen to pitches all day so <laughs> what is the inspiration of first check and how's the experience been thus far
1: um so i don't, i sort of stumbled into first check um, it wasn't a conscious plan like some um, one of the funds in bombay wanted to have a program like first check uh, they didn't want to do it on their own under their uh, you know under their brand name and they felt like it should be like an open source initiative mm. it should be run by an ex founder and um, it should be built to sort of support founders at the early stages uh, and only a founder who has gone through that you know, couple of uh, years will sort of empathize with that so um, I knew them they knew me and somehow things clicked and they helped me set it up um, that, that fund is India Koshint in Bombay right. uh, but now we operate independently like you know, we have our own operating setup we decide independently we first check is its own fund so IQ is sort of a anchor LP for us but we operate completely independently so I sort of stumbled into it uh, but uh, it was uh, I mean It was definitely very, very, very uh, last one year has been super exciting. We have done around 35 investments now. Wow. So till before COVID, we were doing three to four deals a month. Um, The thesis for First Check was that great founders are great at picking other great founders. And this pattern has been repeated uh, for many years in the valley and now in India as well. Mm. So if you, if you take Flipkart, one of the Jungli.com founders was an investor. In Ola.com, uh, oh sorry, and Ola Cabs, uh, Kunal Bell from Snapdeal was an investor. Girish from Freshworks has been an investor and, you know many multiple uh, SaaS companies that are doing really well. Mm. Um, so across across valleys, across geographies, across sectors, you see that uh, some of the best startups typically have other founders who are investors uh, on day one. Right, right. And, we believe that these guys are great at picking early stage companies for two reasons. One is that they either invest in people they know. Um, so, if it's an ex employee who's starting something, or a batchmate from college, or somebody they have worked with in some capacity. So, it's a, it's, in most of these cases, it's a person bet where they know that you know this, this person is a rock star, and no matter what they start, I, sh- I should have some money in, in what they're doing. Right. That is a big, big edge to have on day one. Uh, um, and the other edge they have is that they understand markets very well. So, for example, if you take somebody like Maya, for example, is a venture partner with First Check. Mm. Uh, so, he's run a he's run taxi for sure, exited it to Ola. He understands mobility through and through, right? He understands what pain points are, how these markets evolve, what, what the user behaviors are and so on. So, he'll likely see a trend before mainstream VCs or investors would see them. Right. Uh, or if you take, for example, uh, uh, Vidit who runs Misho, right? He's at the leading as a social commerce. So, he knows exactly what's happening in that market. Um, or if you take Farooq and find and sold it to, uh, which got acquired by Reliance. So these guys understand markets very, very well, and um, we believe so. These are the two edges they have on day one, which other angel investors or other regular investors don't have. Um, they have a, these guys have a great network of people, and they know whom to pick. Uh, you know when people are start. So anybody in the network who starts up typically goes to them. So they have good deal flow to start with. Then to sort through that deal flow, they they know the people that they're investing in and they know the market that they're investing in, and quite often it's a combination of both. Hmm. So because of this, we feel that they have a very big edge when they pick early stage companies. So First Check as a fund was designed to just back these founders. So wherever they invest, we will co-invest with them. Um, so it's a it's a pretty cool concept. In, in the Valley, this is called a scout fund, uh, but we have sort of morphed the model into something else. So in the Valley, for example, each large fund has its own scout program. Um, but here, what we have done is we have not, we have not, not sort of tied ourselves to one fund, we have multiple LPs and uh, first thing is on like an open source program. We tie up with some of the best founders in this country who have built and sold companies and we just co invest with them. So it was quite like because this concept didn't exist in India, I had to sort of come up with ways to explain it to people and right. convince these founder angels on you know, what is in it for them, uh, for us to be investing with them, then build deal flow, uh, work with these guys to make sure that you know we, we invest with them wherever they are investing, build up a brand name, um, so yes, it was it was essentially like starting a company only sure. but when I got into it, I didn't realize that is what I'm <laughs> signing up for but that is what it was. Right. And now we've got around 17 plus uh, founder engines. We call them our venture partners. Some of them are really all of them are really stellar, stellar names like the you can check them out on their website. Um, you know, the, the the VP product management at Freshworks, the CPU at Baiju's, um, the founder of uh, uh, the founder of Metal, Ketan. Uh, founder of OQs, Harpreet. So there's a stellar group of people from different sectors, like you know, tech, FinTech, uh, e-commerce, payments, you name it, like we have people from all different backgrounds. So if a uh, entrepreneur comes pitches to us, we typically know one founder who has built and exited or has operated a company in that space, and that person is like one of the best person to judge uh you know that startup idea. Right. right. So that's how we are. Right.
0: So that's a pretty significant uh, advantage, right? I mean, knowing whom to pick and, you know, also understanding markets intrinsically. uh, What are some of the adaptations that, you know, founders or operators have to go through to become investors? So to be able to sit on the other side of the table, what are those like, you know, I won't call it skill gaps, more like, you know, what are those intrinsics that, you know, you have to sort of adapt?
1: So actually, they are skill gaps. Like a lot of uh, founders, typically when people start doing angel investments, right? They make some, a um, uh, lot of people make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So the skill set you need to be a founder uh, is not the exact same skill set you need to be an investor. There is an overlap for sure but uh, investing mindset is very different. So as I said, risks is the lens you need to look at uh, through when you're when you are uh, when you're an investor. So as a f- founder angels, typically, uh, I think a lot of them get swayed by the personality of the founder that they're dealing with, right? Uh, but oftentimes, the destiny of a startup is decided by the market they're in, not by the how strong the like oftentimes even if you're a stellar founder, right? Like that is actually one lesson I learned at my startup at Nahidisha that if you're in a bad market, like no matter what you do, you will will not be able to build a large company. Uh, So it is a little different and it takes time to adapt to that. Uh, But then a good founder typically understands this fast and then starts pivoting fast and, you know, then reaches a market which is large enough so uh, so sometimes that does end up working like all all the, one of some of the largest um, silicon valley companies like twitch or uh, you know twitter all of these companies were not started as what they are today right they were doing something completely else and then the founder realized that this doesn't work oh but then this does work so let me try doing this and you know this uh, other pro, other side project that we were doing into a large company yeah uh, so uh, to your question on what is the skill set that um, founders need to evolve one so one is basically to you know, so, one is also, uh, one is valuation, figuring out at what price to sort of enter a company at what stage, uh, depending on the traction they have. Mm-hmm. That is a skill set a lot of founders don't have. Um, two, I would say is to figure out how to so structure that or sort of how to advise that company to reach a, an institutional fundraise, like what steps they need to take, uh, who are the best investors in the ecosystem who should participate. So typically founders have worked with their own investors, right? They, they would have had three, four, five funds who have backed them in their journey. But the universe of VCs out there is much larger. Mm. Uh, so to match their portfolio to the right investor is another skill set. So VCs typically do this. VCs full-time investors will go out of their way and meet every other VC in town so that they know who's doing what, who invests at what state, whatever companies, which other fund likes, so that when their portfolio starts maturing, they can make those connects. Uh, but if you're not a full-time investor, you don't have the time to do that, right? Um, so, that is also one more sort of gap uh, which founders have to overcome. Uh, and three, I think in s- some ways, uh, founders need to, uh, uh, founders, when they're investing outside of their own markets, right? Like, for example, you may be a founder who who's started a, run a SaaS company, mm-hmm. uh, but then you get a pitch from somebody who's doing a consumer internet startup. Um, so, the metrics and the... Uh, the lens you have to view that company are very different from your own company and that that yeah, I mean, it is exactly so that sometimes takes time to adapt to uh, to understand you know how the dynamics work differently in that domain than yours so so yeah but but they still do have a huge edge because i think just just knowing the person right that it because on day one what do we judge a team on right there's just typically two people with a laptop with an and a, and a presentation and they might have built something. They may, they may be in the process of building something. There's not much else to go by except the quality of the people. Mm-hmm. So there, that is where they win. They typically know the people that they're backing and that, that is a huge edge to have.
0: Right. You must be talking to a lot of startups right now, right? I mean, tens if not hundreds of uh, startups. Uh, what are the most common mistakes that you notice at a very, very uh, early stage?
1: So I have two pet peeves with the founder community and I also made these mistakes so, I, I do my best to sort of educate founders as to why they are mistakes. Mm-hmm. So, number one thing is that most people have a hammer and they're looking for a nail. Mm-hmm. So, if they know something like they know. Like for example, if you take my mm-hmm. So we used to make Kinect-based games for kindergarten schools, right? Mm-hmm. So, now when I look back to 2012, Kushal who was just outside of college and who started this company, why did schools need Kinect-based games? The answer is they did not. They needed, I mean you didn't specifically need a Kinect in a school, right? Mm. But because we knew how to make Kinect-based games, we made Kinect-based games and we tried to sell them to schools. So that is what most founders do. Like, because they are in a domain or because they know how to build something, they build it and then they expect that that will be a large company. Uh, But that's not how the universe works. They need to think backward, thinking, does somebody need what I'm building? Um, And then, you know, invest time in, um, you know, actually building it. Actually, even before that, does someone need what I'm building? And question number two is, are there enough people like are like those, you know, it may be possible that you and your friends need something, but that doesn't mean that there are uh, another 10 million people who have the same problem. Mm. So figuring out the size of the market you are going after and uh, genuinely, honestly answering that question that does somebody need what I'm building. At early stage, these are the biggest, two biggest things that uh, uh, people mess up. Uh, Yeah. And the third thing I think is people confuse funding with success. So uh, they figure out that, okay, if I can just get, raise a $580 or a million around, then I'm set and, you know, then I'll build it. But mm-hmm. that doesn't really solve much of you, like, that doesn't solve nothing, like, because finally you have to deploy that money somewhere, right? And you need an original insight about the market to be able to successfully deploy that money. Right. Um, and That you won't get till you have spent enough time in the market. So, so founders tend to sort of prioritize the fundraise over the actual progress of the company. Again, I made the same mistake in my life, so I have no shame admitting <laughs> it. Um, right. And the fourth thing I would say is that a lot of founders are running great businesses, but they don't understand that they're not running a VC fundable business. Mm. So, for I, again, my own startup, Nahidisha, was selling to schools, right? Now, schools in India take forever to decide uh, yeah. whether they want to buy something or not. That market is hyper-competitive. So which of a market? <laughs> yeah, people don't pay you on time. They're typically run by builders or politicians, yeah. uh, so not the best people to be selling to. You know, They will uh, I mean, we had cases where we had contracts signed and the school would just call us and say, you give us a 25% discount or we will not pay. Yeah, yeah. So after like two years of paying, suddenly they'll call you and say, reduce prices. Or the uh, bunch of, or just getting money out of them on time is a huge problem. So that market now, no matter what, how much ever money you pump into it, that reality is not going to change. Uh, or there are other sectors where, you know, services companies, people are uh, like, businesses don't have any operating leverage with tech tech right like mm. founders don't realize that they are in a space uh, which is which is never going to be vc funded and that is very sad because uh, they every business doesn't need to raise vc capital right mm. you can be a very happy and very successful founder running a 100 crore uh, company with making a couple of crores for you and your co-founders every year and you can lead a very very Comfortable, not even comfortable. (laughs) Luxurious life is what you can lead with that kind of money in India, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But if you run after VC money, then you will never get there. And VC will never, neither will they fund you nor will, um, you know, you progress with your own. It's a big distraction, right? Trying to go after a VC fundraise. Um, So this I think is one of the biggest things. Like people need to realize, you know, honestly answer the question, can my business at some point make $100 million in revenue? If it can't, then then this is not a VC business. I should look for other sources of capital like a loan or an HNI or something else. But a VC will even if they give me the money, then um, it's going to be a disaster because I will never be able to grow at the scale they expect me to, and uh, it's just be a mismatch of expectations. So um, yeah. So yeah. Point point four is to basically understand whether or not you are in a VC business. That that is crucial.
0: Yeah. Most first-time uh, founders uh, severely underestimate, uh, you know, how much time, how much effort it's going to take to, you know, get any modicum of success, I feel, right? So,
1: yeah, I mean... Yeah, that, that's true. So, there is that curve, I think somebody... Uh, I forgot what it's called, but there's that... That row of disappointment, yeah, I don't yeah, know what they call it. Yeah, yeah. You true, learn, right? so, Basically. Right? Yeah, and then you realize that, okay, this is not as quick as... A, because the... So somehow the, the the media always picks up stories where people make billions, like the Instagram guy started a company and within a year they sold it to yeah. Facebook, and you know for one billion. And YouTube got sold for one billion. Right? So people tend to glamorize these things, and they don't understand that this could be that guy's fourth startup. Like, so if you take Travis for example, right, the Uber founder, he's one of my favorite founders. Yeah. Uber is his third startup. He's been he was at it for I think ten or twelve years when he started Uber. Yeah. he had been living in his mom's basement for ten years after college. Uh, In the US, that's like, that's like an insult to tell someone that you're still staying with your parents. He was doing that, like, for 10 years after campus, he was still staying with his parents. And Uber was his third company. So, it takes a long time, like... um, it's not even about the current company like most likely your current company will not work out but you need to try again and you know keep looking for the one that does yeah so yes 100% agree that people and underestimate how long it takes to sort of actually yeah. uh, hit success
0: another fact about travis is that i mean i think before uber he was he was part of the startup that did did uh, p2p or uh, file sharing or something of that sort Correct. and he had like you know all of these lawsuits with all these hollywood types to uh, battle as well so he's not <laughs> he's not shy of that Right. So he's got that background as well. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that, you know, startups have to do is like, you know, attract the best of the best people. Uh, with whatever yeah. little resources that they have. Right. Uh, yeah. With a very limited brand and so on. Right. So these operators who kind of uh, join startups at very early stages and like own functions or whatever, make or break a startup
1: in, in many ways. Right.
0: So yeah. what can a founder do to kind of attract these people?
1: Uh, so, uh, I think two things. One is um, when you're starting a company, right? Typically, it's going to be you and your co founder, or maybe you don't even have a co founder. Um, so, you should make a list of people in your immediate circle that you, you know and you really respect. Like somebody who, if they open their mouth, you will shut up and listen to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somebody whom you know who has both three things integrity, intelligence, and capacity to do hard work. Okay. You, you should make a list of all the people in your circle who, who have these three qualities and whom Doesn't matter if they're from the domain or not, like that is irrelevant. Um, And then you go talk to them and tell them what you're doing. Right? Tell them why you think what you're doing is a big big idea and why it's going to uh, change the world. Um, They may agree to join you, they may not. But if they don't, then you should ask them, ask them to name their list. Ask them who are these, who are the people in your circle? whom you think I should go talk to and you'll be surprised they'll tell you okay there are four more names that um, there's this guy I was staying with in Kota or there's this Mm -hmm. other guy I went to college with and they'll give you three four names and then you go to them and then again you do the same thing again try and sell them if they don't come on board ask them for their list of people and you just keep doing that and eventually you'll find someone Uh, that is one and this is a non-stop thing like this doesn't end it's not like you do this for the first six months and you like this is what you do for the forever like the first five years in fact, I remember one reading somewhere that the Zomato founders were talking to every single employee that was hired in the 500th employee or something like that. So, uh, if you care about the type of team you're building and I mean, at the end of the day, the team is what the company is. So, you have to do this. Uh, you have to have a very high bar. Um, the other thing which I think Indian founders don't do at all or... Do very, very less of is to communicate their vision online, build a brand personally, yeah. uh, write blogs, do videos, do podcasts, shout from rooftops about what you're doing. So if you see what Austin is doing with Lambda School, for example, yeah. right? He's a he's a magnet. Like he that like, he does zero marketing, right? He just tweets all the time. Yeah. All, all the time he keeps tweeting of what he's doing, successes, failures, what, what are the learning. All the time, he's just communicating what's happening in the company. And that will automatically attract insane inbound interest, right? I'm sure everybody who was interested in tech probably mailed Austin saying, hey, I'm super excited about what you're doing. I would love to grab a coffee.
0: I think uh, one of the Collison brothers
1: uh, left Stripe to join him, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so exactly. Exactly. So that's how big of a win that yeah. is, right? So even in India, I think this has happened with that Pesto founder uh, recruiting one of Swiggy's co-founders to come on board. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. Pretty cool. Yeah. That's a, that's a, really cool. amazing. Uh, yeah. So um, people, founders need to set aside time to uh, sort of invest in this long term, like keep writing blogs, keep sharing, keep appearing on interviews, podcasts, keep sharing what you're doing. Why Why do you think you're you're building something that's going to change the world? Unless you shout from rooftops, nobody's going to you know suddenly wake up and uh, uh, realize that you know this is the company I wanted to join. Yeah. So for, even for us at the some of the best, one of the best hires actually all the best hires we made were inbound. There were people who mailed us saying that I like what you're doing. I read your blog, or I saw your interview on this channel, or I saw you guys there at this event, and uh, I would really like to have yeah, a. chat. those are the best. So inbound guys because they've already self they've filtered themselves out for interest. Right? You know that he cares. Like otherwise he wouldn't make the trip to come and see you and interview on your own. Yeah. So, uh, so, but that inbound has to be generated. Like it doesn't just come one day. Like you have to invest, um, invest time to sort of create that inbound. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Kushal, uh, let's
0: move to what we call like a rapid fire round. Okay. I mean, it's not going to be anything scandalous. Don't worry about it. So uh, okay. just quick answers to all of these uh, following questions. Uh, so okay. if you were to pick one role, right?
1: Founder, operator, or investor? Which one? Uh, investor. Why? So, I, I mean, I, I personally, am, I feel I am a very, uh, uh, I'm too curious to for my own good. Like, I keep reading about things with nothing huh. to do with my, my daily life. I, I I like meeting a lot of people. I like understanding their lives. Uh, and all of these sort of traits align perfectly with being an investor. As a founder, you need to have those blinders on and just do Focus, what you're doing yeah. for years and years and years, right? Like, like, so that quality is which is f- focus essentially, just do one thing for 10 years and do it the best in the world, right? right. So, that is something I don't think I have uh, I have in me. I keep getting distracted, I keep going and meeting other people, sure. finding out what they are doing. So, uh, as a in terms of skill sets, investing is what sort of aligns very well with me. Awesome.
0: Uh, the best founder around in your opinion? Mm.
1: So, I'm a big fan of Sugi. So, Harsha is what I would name. Like, I feel Sugi has an executed. Relentlessly, I have I must have had like two hundred orders in like uh, last year, Mm -hmm. and not one order was late. It is insane. Like (laughs) so, I I'm a big fan of Swiggy. Yeah, the best investor in your opinion. So I'm a big fan of Bill Gurley from Benchmark. Uh, uh, I think the all time greatest of all time VCs. Uh, if you read that book, um, there's a book called which covers Airbnb and Uber. So, Uber, his investment in Uber was on an accident. It's not that he was sitting in his office and one day drivers came and pitched him. He knew that there is going to be a company which is going to be a marketplace for transportation and he had met every single startup doing that. And wow. he had been watching that company for three years or two years before Uber actually came about. So, and he's, he he had done multiple marketplaces before and he had identified with okay, there is a market where a marketplace would really, really kick off, uh, you know, a huge business and this company will be built so i mean benchmark of course has a slew of hits but just the over investment was a monster yeah. monster return on their investment so to anticipate that you know this is this is how this market is going to evolve and then to find the founder who's going to actually build the company that dominates that market yeah, is truly fantastic uh, build early for me is uh, for sure my uh, investor uh, indian in- investor uh, in india hmm tough to pick so, I owe a lot of what I'm doing at first check to Anand and Madhugar from India Quotient. Uh, and I think they... Uh, I respect them a lot for uh, seeing uh, trends before they become mainstream. So, they backed lending companies before they became mainstream. Lending cart was their company. Uh, they backed vernacular Indian companies before they became... Chat was their company. Uh, so, I really respect what they've done with uh, India Quotient. They've taken contrarian bets and a lot lot of that has been awesome. out. One... Uh, Apart from that, if I, if I can name one more, I think Axel is also good. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, Axel is uh, <laughs> fixed with Axel. I think uh, 10 unicorns or something like that in yeah. their portfolio. So, they, they are absolutely really. with Flipkart, Swiggy, Freshworks. Uh, and the way they have dominated the SaaS category, right? Like any SaaS founder who starts up automatically thinks that I should raise from Shekhar Kirati at Axel. So, uh, kudos yeah, to Axel
0: as well. Uh, one Series B company that you wish you had invested in? Series B?
1: Razorpay. I really like yeah. Razorpay. I love the product. I love the execution of the founders. Razorpay is one company I would definitely Okay.
0: Like. Most underrated sector in India right now, investing-wise?
1: Uh, I think EdTech is still underrated. Like, despite Anacademy and Baiju's uh, uh, you know, breaking out, the, the the depth of that market is hmm. so huge. It's just so big. And the demand for it is just so high that uh, I, I like, I think Gaurav Munjal said that in one of his interviews that India's largest uh, internet startup will not be e-commerce; it will be education company. I think I agree with him The 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 breadth and depth of that sector is yeah. just immense. So, edtech is, I think, still until I mean, I mean, Baijus broke out, people are not even investing mm. in edtech. So, we are, I think just the party is just. Started. I agree
0: with you. Yeah, especially I mean after this post-COVID phase, right? I mean, uh, yeah, it's going to be a heck of a heck of a thing actually. So,
1: yeah. if you could go all in on one
0: company right now, which one would it be?
1: Hey, I would go with Swiggy, man. I am a big fan yeah. of Swiggy. There is relentless, relentless execution. And now with, again, with COVID, uh, uh, you know, the demand is going, Demand for groceries and basically having one app that just gets stuff to you wherever you are, uh, right. that is going to go through the roof.
0: So No, just Swiggy. on the topic of Swiggy, right? So, I mean, so much of uh, the convenience we take for granted right now, I mean, the resolution on their uh, service issues, right? It's just so fantastic. I mean, it's just, you,
1: Three yeah. taps and you're done, yeah. man. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I see people in the US complaining on Twitter about, you know, I had to, I ordered food and it came after two hours and then I had to, uh, you know, file a, call a guy for uh, to return the food. And I'm like, dude, like that's something we should do in 2015. That's crazy. Like, Swiggy is like, in three taps, I can cancel my order. In three taps, I can probably change the dish. Three or four taps, I can change the dish. I don't have to speak to any human being. So it's amazing the way customer care they have they have absolutely nailed it. Uh, the delivery experience even the, uh like the way older people use it for me is always a good sign of how uh, how good the, the, the user experience is. Right? Like my dad for example still gets very confused mm-hmm. with Zomato. Like he will actually call me and said can you find his restaurant that app mm-hmm. I cannot find it. Sugi may has not happened. He will be able to use it automatically. So this I have seen with multiple not just my dad multiple people have seen they just Swiggy is just way more easier to use and it just works. Yeah. So, yeah. To them. Yeah. so most underrated founder skill uh, that you think? I think this uh, just the first thing like most startups I think whether you're going to be a 10 billion dollar company or not is probably like even if you whether you have a chance of being one or not is decided in the first six months of your company. So understanding which market is that deep that you can build that large company right? that that skill set, I think, very very few founders have where they uh, they genuinely understand. That is this going to be a VC business? Is it going to be that large a company? Can I build that larger company in six to seven years, eight years time frame? Um, that just evaluating markets, understanding you know which yeah. are the markets I need to go after. That skill set, very yeah. few people have. Because people typically come from their own domains, right? Like somebody has worked in e-commerce all his life, he sees e-commerce as a next startup. Somebody ed tech, they do tech. Somebody has seen SaaS, they do SaaS. Very few founders come out of one startup or do something, you know, for five years and then decide, hey, I think that market is going to be huge. Let me just go after that and build yeah. something there. Yeah, because I think uh, you know founders are essentially
0: problem solvers, and if you give them a problem, they'll they, they'll be like happy to like put go all in and solve that problem. But yeah. really having that perspective exactly. to decide which problem to solve, right?
1: That exactly, uh, yeah, that exactly. Is, that is exactly. The first thing. And that's actually it's kind of tragic because a lot of people I see are amazing like amazing people with great skill sets but they're just in the wrong market or they're just solving the wrong problem and uh, nobody can help them no matter how much money you give them that problem will remain a small problem so yeah evaluating markets I think is the most underrated. Okay most underrated investor skill Uh, I think being nice um, people don't uh, I think I don't know if it's underrated at at least I think in India maybe sort of is but in the US it's caught up now Uh, but just be nice to people, like, understand that the founder, whatever he or she is doing, right? I mean, for most of them, it is their first yeah. try. And uh, if if it's going to be a Travis, uh, he better remember you when he starts Uber, right? So uh, he should come back to, you. like, six years later when he starts Uber, he should remember that, okay, this was the guy who, even though he didn't invest, he actually helped me out. He responded to me. He you know actually gave me honest feedback on why he's not right. investing. Um, so yeah, being nice and being honest with founders is, I think, uh, very very underrated the way i think b- most one problem with india i think is that and to some extent i am also guilty of it is we don't we are not very good at telling people no uh, so we either avoid it or we uh, we give them a diplomatic answer but you should do the founder a favor and tell them honestly why you're not investing why you think it's a small market or why do you think it'll never be a large market or if you think the team is not good enough you should tell them that so that they can go do something else and you know save themselves a couple right. of years.
0: Like uh, this guy, Kevin O'Leary does on Shark Tank, basically. <laughs> maybe too
1: harsh. <laughs> Kevin, maybe he's a little too direct. Yeah, yeah. But I I, I always feel that. So, I remember, for example, when I was running Nairisha, right? Uh, one of the best meetings I had was with Anand Daniel at Axel. I pitched him, I explained everything. Then he, then he just sat me down and he explained the math to me. that Look, this is where you are. This is your average selling price. To reach 100 million, this is how much you have to sell. Here's how many people are there who can buy this. So, this, these numbers don't add mm-hmm. up. So, no matter what you do, they, they never never, right? So, that I was, I was eye opening for me that yes, he's right. Like, I can't argue with him after that. So, just do that math. Tell people why you're saying no so that they can either go to something else or they can choose to do a small business in that category. So, at least they know that, okay, right. they don't have to continue right. wasting their time with VCs. Yeah. That's certainly valuable.
0: Uh, what is the best quarantine hack that you've discovered?
1: Quarantine hack i my camera off. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so I I started getting up a little earlier to sort of get some time uh, to you know do the housework, get ready to start the day before. Otherwise, it I, actually honestly I'm still in the middle right. of processing this, so I don't know if I have a good hack. Like it's been two three months. I'm not used to doing all the housework uh, on my own. So yeah, I don't have a good answer to this.
0: Right. And uh, what is the book that you're reading right now?
1: Uh, right now, I was reading this book by Scott Adams. Uh, actually, I, honestly, I haven't read it for two weeks. But two weeks back, I was reading the the latest Scott Adams book. I like his books a lot. Can't remember the name right now. Yeah, he makes he makes a lot of sense. Yeah. so I so, like I liked his last book a lot. How I uh, how I feel that everything yeah. and still win one big right. So loser uh, think I think. Yeah, correct. Uh, loser think is, yeah. is a new one. Loser think is the one. Yeah, yeah, loser yeah, think is the one. I, I, and yeah, I
0: heard about it in that uh, Shane Parrish uh, podcast that I heard. So, yeah, on that note, what is the podcast okay. that you listen to and that you recommend?
1: Um, so, I listen to Invest Like the Best by uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, then uh, Shane Parish podcast. Um, then I like your Bharat Varta podcast nice. we with Harsh and uh, Siddhar. Many um, vc I listen to a couple of more. How, 20VC, yeah. somehow not that much. I don't know why. I somehow never caught along with 20VC. How I built this, I like a lot by Guy uh, guy Raz. Then, uh, my podcasting has sort of gone down over the past one or two years. I used to yeah. listen to podcasts when I was driving. Then, when I, whenever I should drive, I used to listen to podcasts. But a uh, year or two back, I decided enough driving. I will not have time to drive, so... Uh, since then, it has gone down significantly. But <laughs> now, in the lockdown yeah. with dishwashing, it has gone yeah. back up. So, yeah.
0: So, yeah. all right, we're almost at the end of the podcast. Uh, what do you have coming up? And you know, what are some of the words of advice that you can share with uh, all of the startup folks who are listening
1: to this? Um, just pick pick a good problem to solve that, and like I would say, spend enough time validating this, just these two things: that uh, do people really have a problem that I'm trying to solve? And two, are there enough of those people in the world who have that problem? Just these two questions, if you can answer to yourself, honestly, and you know clearly articulate these two things that like, do that before you write a single line of code, uh, no matter if it takes you one month, two months, six months, don't fret about that. But just be sure about this before you right. start the company.
0: Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, uh, Kushal. It was great having you. Thank you for sharing all those wonderful insights and wish you a fantastic deal flow for the rest of the year and the years forward thanks my pleasure being here bye bye thanks for tuning in to this episode of the startup operator we'll interview operators at fast growing startups and curate insights that can help you do better this podcast is available on all popular platforms if you like our content don't forget to subscribe and share thank you until next time put your head down and execute